Okay. Well, any good ones? Best days. What are they? The right, the right answer, the gentleman says. Wedding day. Yeah, good. Okay. That's, that's just the default where you just like, you know. Yeah. What other ones? Kids were baptized. That's a good day. I remember that day. The day you adopted your daughter. Wow. That's pretty cool. There's something about great days that make them uncommon. It's it's unique. Something something happens in it and it's 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 what we just call uncommon time. Great days, sometimes bad days are like that, but but it's uncommon time. It's it's memorable. It's time that's not ordinary. It's not common. We're entering, starting this Sunday, we're entering the most uncommon time that the church has. It's called Holy Week. And this is something that the church for years and years has been, has been celebrating. In fact, our, our, our oldest written record, we've, we've got a written record. It's a, it was a diary entry from, from a woman in the, in the 300s. This is from the 4th century. And she was a pilgrim. Um, her name is Egeria. And she traveled to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage, and she, she saw this going on, that, that these Christian followers in Jerusalem were celebrating these different days, seven days leading up to Easter celebration. And she went back and, and she wrote about it. So at least for 1,700 years, probably longer, the church has been celebrating this Holy Week. And so what I thought I would do tonight, we've been in this series um, looking at, at Jesus answering kind of the big questions, and I was going to go a certain direction tonight, and I kind of I just changed it, because I want us to, to kind of prepare our hearts for Easter. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I don't, I don't do a good job of always preparing for things. I just, you know, I can, you, you just kind of walk in, and you kind of do things off the cuff, and we approach oftentimes things like the greatest celebration that we have, Easter the same way. But, but the church has this rich, rich tradition of saying, no, 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 we need to prepare our hearts. We need to prepare our minds, prepare our lives for, for walking into it. And so these, these different days, you've got Palm Sunday is the first one. That's, if you think about almost like bookends, that's this coming Sunday. And then the Sunday that follows uh, Easter Sunday, these are sort of the bookends of this, of this week. And what I want to do is kind of fill in some slots in those days in between. You've got a bulletin. And on the inside of it lists those those days of the week there. And I just want to walk through those days and hit some of the some of the highlights of this. This is the final week of Jesus's life on earth here. Uh, this this week is so important that, for instance, the Gospel of Mark, which is the first gospel uh, written down, recorded almost half of his gospel. He, he gives to just this one week alone. Um, so that has something to do with import. This is something that he's saying, this is so important. I'm giving half of my writing to it. And so it, it's, it's really the climax of Jesus's entire life and certainly of his last three years of ministry as well. Jesus comes to Jerusalem. That's what the week's about. It's about him coming to Jerusalem. Uh, conflict begins rising. It looks like things that start out very well seem to take a bad, scary turn and it ends with Jerusalem's leaders ensuing Jesus trying to capture him which they do 
hold him for trial and ends in his crucifixion, his burial, and then resurrection. So Holy Week begins with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. That's what we call Palm Sunday. And then it ends with Easter resurrection. And so here's the challenge, I guess, that I just want to give all of us. Is I want to challenge you, as I'm challenging myself, to in, invest in this coming up week differently than you ever have before. Like, what if, what, if you, what if you lifted this week out of normal time and you said, this is going to be like sacred time. This, this is going to be an uncommon week for me. What if I, what if I reflected on these, on these passages? What if I read these? In fact, in, in that I listed the passages for each one of these days. What if, what if you took, you know, Bill Hybels always talks about this idea of chair time. He says everyone needs chair time. You need to have like 15 minutes a day of chair time where you anchor yourself in your chair and, and you're reading scripture, you're reflecting. What if, what if you took just chair time this week and you said, I'm just going to read these passages. It's five minutes. It's 10 minutes, 15 minutes, however long you might take, but have some chair time and really set aside this time to reflect on it. Pay attention to what, what, what God's leading your thoughts to, because God might speak to you in brand new ways, ways that he, he hasn't before. He might reveal things about himself, about your life that you've, you've never known before. So anticipate it. So tonight, again, I just want to do an overview. Again, we can't let, you know, half of Mark's gospel is this week. We're just going to kind of do an overview of each one of these days. So let's begin. Sunday. Okay? Palm, Sunday, and triumph. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus leaves. Jesus is living up in Galilee. It's further up north. Jesus leaves Galilee, and he's ultimately heading down to Jerusalem. But he stops at a small village, a village that we've talked about, Bethany. Do you remember our very first week we talked about the marriage he turns the water into wine. This, this is this town, Bethany. He comes back here later when Lazarus, his good friend, one of his closest friends, dies. So Bethany is a tiny little village. It's like a 30-minute walk from Jerusalem. So it's right on the outskirts of it. But this seems to be kind of a home base for Jesus. His closest friends in life, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and then their probably extended family, are very, very close friends of Jesus. And so he stops there, and he stays there the whole week. He sleeps there, and then in the days he goes into Jerusalem. At night, he comes back, and he stays at Bethany there. Well, on Palm Sunday, Jesus decides to go to Jerusalem. It's the first day of Holy Week. And so he goes west. Uh, he, he crests the Mount of Olives, and, and, and he comes down into the holy city of Jerusalem. Now, because it's Passover... Everyone, all Jews have to come to Jerusalem for Passover because that's where you make your sacrifice. So think of the crowds, the Galileans from where he's from. The crowds are on these same roads as well walking. So he's walking with tons and tons of people, crowds and throngs of pilgrims who are from Galilee. And as he's traveling among them, um, he's quite well known. The Galileans know him. They start getting quite excited and so all, all, the, all the Galileans who, who are camped around the city for this Passover celebration, they begin to cheer. They begin to have this celebration. And then the Judeans who are there, they start catching on too. And they go, oh, yes, we've heard about this guy. And they haven't had as much interaction with him. But it starts this huge, huge excitement. Now, in order to understand the meaning of it, let me take like a tiny detour for a second. Okay, because there's the crowds. There's the cheering, you know, we call it Palm Sunday where they have palm branches and they're, you know, they're throwing palm branches down in the road. This is what you would call a triumphal entry. 
Now, if you lived in the Roman world, anywhere in the Roman world, you would know what this is. This, this would evoke a, a picture and meaning in your mind. Here's basically the idea. In the Roman world, any time a major city went out to battle, its, its generals would get all ready. They would go out and they'd be gone for possibly months. And then when they, if they had won, they would send heralds back and they'd say, we're returning and here's the day that we will be returning. And so the city would just get all ready. They would come out in the streets. They would be waiting. And the general would be on his war horse. And he would be out in front. And then behind him, all of his legions, he would have a, a, a garland, a wreath on his head. His, his horse would have flowers all over its neck. And there would be flowers in the road. And as he comes walking in in this triumphal reentry, he would be followed by his you know, legionnaires and auxiliary. And, and, and finally, he would have the... Uh, a wagon full of all the spoils of war. And then finally after that, the slaves that he had captured and brought back. And he would be coming in out in front as the general always does. That's what it is. So this is a picture where Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, people create a triumphal entry. And they start throwing palm branches. You know, we always hear about palm branches. Here's the significance of that. Palm branches are kind of like any time we find coins from from this era and a little before the Jewish coins, they always have palm branches on palm branches became kind of a symbol. Uh, it'd be like the Confederate flag. It's sort of like we're rebels, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. So palm branches are, are a Jewish symbol of independence. And it'd be like us waving our flag and some. And so they start taking palm branches and they're this is it. He's coming out. A triumphal entry, and yet Jesus decides to ride in not on a war horse. He comes in on a donkey. Jesus comes into Jerusalem humbly, riding a donkey. They don't. Ex- no, no one expects this. This would have been very odd. And he comes in. And people are thinking this is going to be a big moment. I mean, think about it. If you're going to announce your, your candidacy, I was reading in the paper this last week, the first person announced their candidacy, you know, this, I'm going to be running in this election. This is a big moment. This is a announce your election kind of thing. And so he comes walking into the city and he goes up to the temple and he walks around. He looks and he sees things that he doesn't particularly like, but he doesn't say anything. He's quiet. He doesn't say a word. There's no great speech. There's no moving moment. And then he just gets up. And he leaves and he returns to Bethany and people are going, what was that about? I thought this was that was, wasn't that the guy I thought this was going to be it. But he's almost pushing that away. What I want to do tonight is is make some observations about the text that kind of ask a question like, what can I take away from that? What can I take away from these different days? So take Palm Sunday, for instance. Here's, I think, a big lesson that we learn. The glory of Jesus is found in his lowliness. See, we as Christians are distinct in that when we use the word that the rest of our world uses, leadership, we see it through the lens of servanthood. If we're, if we're Christ followers. We don't see leadership measured through kind of the normal leveraging of power and prowess and that sort of thing. Jesus approaches the city not as a Roman conqueror, he approaches it humbly. He, 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 he lacks all the typical trappings of, of, of power and status. And this would have astonished his followers. And this story speaks richly about what God values. That Jesus leads without pageantry. 
And as he calls us to so often when he talks about what leadership looks like, we're going to look at this in, in some of these others, uh, other days as well. This theme keeps coming up. What it means to be what it means to be the greatest, he says, is to be the servant of all. And he's like inverting everything constantly. And they're and they're constantly getting kind of all their categories re rearranged. So that's Palm Sunday. Monday. Monday is confrontation. Jesus leaves Bethany again. Remember, because he's gone back. He's spending every night there. Goes over the Mount of Olives toward Jerusalem. But he stops right before he gets to Jerusalem. There's a little valley there and he stops in the valley and he does this weird kind of eccentric thing with the fig tree. Do you remember this story? He's he's coming there before he gets to the temple. He stops and and he walks up to a fig tree and he finds nothing on it and he curses it. Now, he's either having just a bad day. Or he's acting like an Old Testament prophet, guys like Jeremiah, like Amos, like Isaiah, because these old prophets did Old Testament prophets did this kind of thing all the time. So he's he's doing standard Old Testament prophet kind of actions. Here's kind of what's going on. Middle, Middle East fig trees. This is kind of how it works. The fruit grows. Leaves come pretty early in the year. In springtime, there's fully formed figs fruit, but they're green. They're like hard as a rock. You can't eat them. Okay? This is springtime. This is Passover. So this is a springtime fig tree. So it, it can't be eaten. And then they mature all summer long. And then in like October, they're, they're brown and they're soft and they're delicious. And they pick them and, and eat them at that point. So Jesus walks up to a springtime fig tree and he acts out his message that he has for Jerusalem on the tree first. That's what he's doing. So it's real clear when he gets to Jerusalem, what am I doing? You have to take these two pictures and put them together and you'll see what I'm trying to communicate. And he curses it because of this. And this is what they would have understood from the fig tree. From a distance, it looks like it has something that will feed you. Right? These figs. But upon closer inspection, there's nothing there to eat. <laughs> then he goes immediately to the temple. and He finds the exact same circumstances. This glorious temple. This, this is the temple that, that Herod the Great had had under construction for like 60, 70 years. It was, it was amazing. It was beautiful. It was phenomenal. And from a distance, it looked amazing, this temple. But upon closer inspection... Jesus would say, it has nothing for you to eat. And so he comes into the temple courts and, and he discovers that it's devolved. The temple has devolved into just sort of commercial enterprise. And all of these rules and expectations that kind of excluded certain people. Th these people, yes, those people no, and so jesus starts turning over he's 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 knocking furniture over he, he's running all the animals that are being sold in the temple out of it as you can imagine making people very upset there's there's money changers in there money changers are there because as a jewish person you would come you would pay your annual tax to the temple and you do it when the one time you come which is passover so you come and you're from galilee and you have you have galilee coins well the temple decided that we're not sure that your coins are as pure as our local coins, because back then coins are pure silver, pure gold, ideally. And so they say, well, you've got to change. You have to change your money into local money first. So if you've ever traveled and you've ever had to like change money, who wins at a who wins at a table when you're changing money? Yeah. 
And so this is what's going People are being, ex, tiny ways, they're being exploited and things, things are very changed. There was also something that, that Jesus would have seen that he didn't like. There was a short wall, just a short wall, that, that was erected in one of the courtyard areas there of the temple. And it was a dividing wall, and it had something written on it. And what it said basically was, if, if, if you don't happen to be Jewish, uh, you can't come anywhere near this area. You have to stay. You can't come anywhere near the place of where God is, and if you do, we'll kill you. And they had temple guards there with swords ready to do it, and they would do it. Jesus says, my house is to be a house of prayer. And here's the shocking part. He said, for, for all nations. The Greek word is ethnos. Think about that. For all ethnic people. He's saying, my, my house, that's, that's kind of radical right there, the my part, right? It, whose? My house, he says, my temple, it's to be a place of, it's, it's to be a place to actually find God. If you even look at the way the temple is designed, it's built almost like a little mini picture of the cosmos. And it's communicating a picture of saying, there's God, but then because of my rebellion, I'm, I'm separated from him. But God has reached out and made a way so I can get back to him. And that's what they're enacting every time you go to temple and you do sacrifice. You're reenacting the reality of your cosmic state in life and in the world. And Jesus says, it's to be like, it's to be like, like a magnet. It's supposed to draw people to. Remember the whole, we're to be like a light to the nations, a light to the world. And you're doing this instead of doing this. And he's very upset. He's not happy with this. So what does that mean for us? Well, I think one thing is that whenever the church lives for its own benefit, it becomes something which just kind of exists for itself. Jesus isn't happy. Whenever the church excludes anybody, because of their background or their history or their baggage or their race or their whatever. Jesus isn't happy. And you guys, I, I, I am so thankful that, that we are a community which welcomes people from any single background. That, that there aren't those barriers of either what someone looks like or even how they behave right away. That, uh, that we would say, oh no, that's, you know, that's, that's not us. I'm so thankful that, that you are a community who extends welcome to people who don't get welcomed a lot. Because that's big. Tuesday. Now, we can't be exactly sure when this happens. Anointing. We can't be exactly sure that it's Tuesday. Um, but we know it's middle of the week. And Tuesday is a good time to think about it in here. Now, Jesus is back in Bethany where he's staying every night. Remember, he's with his closest friends, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, their extended family as well. And um, we can assume, or, uh, assume that their larger family would have been. They're probably you know, related to many of the people who are, who are part of the village. And it becomes clear to them that Jesus' initial welcome with Jerusalem is taking a bad turn. It's becoming clear to them that this is amping up toward conflict and that this might not end well. And God's mission, Jesus certainly knows, and they're kind of picking up on it, seems to be severe for Jesus. It seems to be a very different, difficult, rather, call. And they actually gather around him here. They actually support him. They decide to support him rather than kind of trying to you know, dissuade him or get him to do something else, knowing he has a difficult job to do. And Mary, this is Martha's sister, 
Mary does this amazing thing that's very unexpected. As, it, as, as they're at a gathering with Jesus, all sitting around, she begins, um, or she, she brings a vial of perfume to him. And the text says that it's pure nard. Now, now nard, nard smells like gladiolas. Uh, there's one Roman historian who explains nard in great detail as far as what it was like and how it, how it was got. And um, uh, it, it, it comes from India, actually. It's at the, at the base of the Himalayan mountains. They would, they would get these plants out and extract the, the, uh, the oils from it and then put it in the, um, bring it across in the spice caravans and all that sort of thing. In fact, you know, it's kind of funny. In the ancient world, um, the, the really cheap, like crummy, nasty perfume came from France. Isn't that awesome? I kind of like that. The good stuff came from India. And so Mary, Mary pours this on, on his head. She breaks it. It's very, very expensive. It says it's pure nard. It's not mixed with, it's not with, mixed with any of the roots of the plant. It's, it's pure nard. And in, over Jesus' head, it says she breaks it, and it, it's dripping down his hair. On his face, it's on his hands, it's covering his skin, on his back. It's, it's, it's all over his body. Mary pours it all over him. And Jesus says, what Mary has done is good. She has anointed me for burial. Nard. Nard is a burial spice. That's what it's used for. And do you know what? I was just thinking, I never, I never really thought about that, this until this week. Do you realize that later that week, just a few days later... He's taken prisoner. He's 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 tortured. Uh, he's taken up to a cross. He's he's stripped naked. He would have been stripped and crucified, absolutely naked, humiliated. All of his possessions are taken from him. They talk about you know they they took his garments and his clothes. The only thing Jesus had was this gift of fragrance. He would have still smelled very probably like gladiolas. He was still covered in this smell, this extravagant gift that Mary gave him. The only thing that they didn't take from him was that when he's killed, he's surrounded by the fragrance of nard. Now, two things for us. Number one, there is no expense too high for our devotion to Jesus. Um, Every morning... You want to challenge? Ask yourself this question every morning. Am I willing to risk everything that's important in my life for Jesus today? That's a tough, that's a tough question. It, there, was a, there was kind of an interesting study that was done a few years back. Um, uh, it, was called, or it was published in a book called Reveal and another one called Move. and It was, it was like a seven-year study where they kind of study different churches and tried to find kind of a spiritual growth continuum, like where are people at when they're exploring Jesus to when they kind of make initial commitment and they keep moving and all these sorts of things. And they said the, the number one defining characteristic of a person who is, who is like sold out, he would say, man, this person, um, not just how they answer, it's not like Bible knowledge thing, but this person is like a fully devoted, de, fully devoted follower of Christ, is that they said all of them exhibited this attitude that they said, I'm willing to risk anything for the sake of the kingdom like everything's up for grabs in my life if furthers the kingdom of god that attitude like pervaded came out of people like it came out of their pores it's about yielding control 
Um, am I willing to sacrifice? Am I, am I willing to risk anything? And the number two, second thing for us, that one of the most precious things in life is to have a circle of people around you, family, friends, who, who stand with us when God's call on our life is so stinking difficult, when it's so hard. When that decision to make a right decision is so difficult or when we're trying to discern God's will for our life to have a group of friends. And I'm going to call, I'm going to use the word family and I'm, I'm meaning it like in the sense here for, you know, for Jesus. I know a lot of people I've talked to a lot of people and they say, well, I'm single. I don't have that. I, you know, I don't I don't have a family. Yes, yeah, so is Jesus. That's why Jesus went to Bethany a lot because he needed that. We need that. I need that. So it doesn't matter if you're single or married. You have a family. You need to put yourself, and that's why we always talk about, are you, are you in a small group? Are you in a connection? Are you in a community? I mean, this is a great example right here. We're trying to be community to where when, when I'm going through difficult things, I need people who can stand by me, who can help me, who can help me press through when it just feels like, I don't know if I can do this. I need people to hold my feet to the fire. I need people to hold me accountable, to encourage me, to laugh, to cry with me. I've got to have that. And Jesus had it. And so I guess I would even just ask that, not just for you, but think about some of it. Is there anyone in your family, and again, I'm using that term broadly. Is there anyone in your family who is right now facing something difficult that, that you kind of like need to stand with them, maybe a little closer than you have before? Uh, maybe, maybe you need to help them accept a difficult reality by kind of shouldering it. Is there anyone in your life? Is there a name that pops into your head? Wednesday. Now, every day that Jesus came to Jerusalem, he was surrounded by crowds. The Galileans loved, loved his teaching. They have been following. I mean, think about this is a guy. Remember, you know, he fed 5,000 people at one point. He has huge, massive crowds that follow him at times. And um, he's, he's teaching. Now, imagine, imagine this. Imagine on a Sunday morning, okay, let's say, let's say Pastor Derry's teaching, and uh, service starts and no one's sitting in the seats. People are like, what's going on? And there's some, like, traveling, you know, teacher, some guy who's famous or whatever, and he's out on the North Lawn or he's out in the mall, and everyone's, like, out in the mall, and they're, like, hanging on every word he's talking about. They're fascinated by him, and, like, the service starts, you know, like, awkward, right? That's kind of the situation. Jesus is out in the courts, and he's kind of, I mean, imagine thousands of people, and they're not really concerned about what's going on in the temple. They're just, they're hanging on his every word. And, and his teaching is so different because he's, he's willing to confront the leadership for how they're taking care of people. But he's really kind and gentle to just the average guy, the woman who's there going, I want to know what it means to follow God. I don't, I don't know what that means. And so they're loving his teaching and he's standing there. And as he's standing there teaching the whole time, it's a great opportunity to test him. And see, the religious theological leaders want to test him. They want to trip up. They want to ask him a question to kind of show that he should be disqualified as a teacher, as a rabbi. He doesn't have normal credentials like they do. So one teacher in particular, he's probably representative, um, in the crowd, he says, question, what do you think is the most important law in the Bible? He's talking about the Old Testament. Now, later Jewish religious leaders actually cataloged all the laws. There are 613 Okay, it's like a lot. 613 laws in the Old Testament. He goes like, which one's the top? What would you say? 
Yes, Jesus. And Jesus reaches back into Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. And he says, yeah, it's love God with everything. No end. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Every, everything that is you, love God with that. Now, the, the guy would have probably been satisfied by that. And he leaves. And then Jesus goes, oh, oh, I got a second one, too. And he reaches into Leviticus 19.18. And he says, second one's a lot like it. Real, real similar. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, these are these two, he said, are greater than all the sacrifices made here in this temple. It's the most important thing there is. What does that mean for us? Well, one thing that it means is what God expects from you is uncomplicated. Isn't that kind of nice? No, I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes I kind of, ah, oh, you know, it's kind of tough being a Christian. It's, yeah, but you know what God expects from you? It's not complicated at all. What he expects from me is not complicated. You love God with all you have, withhold nothing, and you serve people, the person sitting next to you, sacrificially caring for them. And he asks us to do this to, to love our, our, our colleagues. He asks us to love our family members. He asks us to love the people in our, in our uh, sororities, in our fraternities, in our clubs. He asks us to love our enemies, the people that we really struggle with. And what we find when we do this is what Jesus says. He said, my yoke is easy. It's actually the easy way to do life. It's not the hard way. This is the easy way to do life. And he says, my burden is like what God wants from from me is simple. He wants love toward him. And that same love toward others. You shall love your neighbors as yourself. Thursday. Thursday is supper. Now, this is the Jewish feast Passover. Um, it begins at sundown. So Jews would go to the temple all all throughout the day, and they would ceremonially sacrifice a, a, a one-year-old lamb, or they could sacrifice a one-year-old goat as well, typically a lamb. And what they would do is they would take the lamb, they would go to the temple, and they, they would offer the lamb to the uh, Levites who, who are in kind of a certain area, and they, they would take the animal, and there were thousands of lambs, probably many stations is, is what most historians think, and they, they would sacrifice the animal. They would, they, they would cut the animal's throat. And they would, once it was dead, they, they would hang the body on, on the wall. And then they would cut it open. They, they would take out the innards, the organs. And that's what the, that's what the priest, that was sort of a gift to the priest for what they would eat, which I'm so glad we don't do that anymore. Um, and, the, and, and then they would take off the fleece. And then they would take the carcass of the animal, the meat, and they would give it to the, back to the person. They'd put it on their shoulder. And they would go home. And that's what they would cook and eat that night in the Passover meal. Um, now, when when they come into the uh, to the Passover feast, um, Jesus has already located a location. It's inside the tent, it's inside the city walls, and he has his disciples come in, and it's it, it's a it's a huge feast it's a big meal there's four cups of wine and lots of different ceremony and there's scripture readings and there's all these uh, different experiences a long long meal um and jesus does two things that are surprising to his followers in the midst of it um 
first of all, when they come in, he washes their feet. Um, this is important because in the ancient world, think about it. You're walking around. There's no asphalt or cement. You're wearing sandals. Your feet get very dirty. The, you know, the straps on your on your shoes are just, you know, disgusting. Imagine imagine a 13 year old boy's gym sneakers and then like times 20, you know, never been washed and just, you know, disgusting. I mean, they're they're gross. And so. Foot washing is a normal thing, but you have a servant do it. You have a slave do it. You have someone lowly do it. And it's important because at a table, they're reclining on pillows and their feet are right next to the you know, guy next to you. I don't want to you know, have my head next to your nasty feet. Um, and it's close to the table. And so they would wash feet. Well, Jesus stands up and it says he wraps a towel around. Well, that's, that's the picture of a slave. So he says, let me show you something. And he dresses up like a slave. And then he walks around and, and he washes their feet. And once again, they have servanthood placed right in front of their face. And the second thing, um, let me give a little bit of background to try to kind of explain this piece. When a Passover sacrifice was done, typically the whole family didn't go to Jerusalem to do it. You know, crowd control is like out of control already. So typically the father of the household, maybe a couple of his sons, would take the animal. They would go there. They would make sacrifice. And then they would bring it back and the whole family would eat it. And one of the questions that was always asked by the, by the household, by the people who stayed back home, was how is it that we become equal participants with, with the Passover sacrifice? Because you're there doing it. We're here. And the answer was very clear. The answer was those who eat the meat of the sacrificial lamb become partners at the altar of the sacrifice. So the benefits of of the sacrificial lamb come to you as you eat it. This is the understanding for those who weren't there. So in the course of the meal, think about Jesus interrupts. He like he stops. He does something totally because it's a standard. You know how it's going to go. It's like watching a movie you've seen a hundred times, but he stops it. And he interrupts and he does something really different. Jesus takes the bread and he holds it up. And he says, this is my body broken for you. And then he takes the wine and he says, this is my blood in a new covenant. Covenant is a relationship word with God in a new covenant spilled for he pours it. And he says that it's poured out for you. This is my body. Then he says, when you eat this bread and drink this cup, think about this. He says, you basically what he's saying is you become a partner with me at the altar. Well, the altar is the cross. That's where this lamb is going to be sacrificed. That's why when we take communion, it's a rich moment. It's a moment of saying, I'm becoming a partner with the sacrifice. I'm I'm attached to him Because I'm partaking of this. And it's a rich, rich symbol and sacrifice. Jesus is going to be sacrificed at the altar of the cross. And when I take the bread and the cup, I get the benefits. They come to me. Jesus wants his listeners, he wants those guys there to take home, like Monday morning, two things. One is that this altar is now the new center of your life. Old Testament, making that sacrifice, that was the center of their life. That, that's what the purpose of the temple is for, is sacrifice. And he says, now this altar is now the center. This altar is a cross. And then secondly, 
um, this idea that Jesus says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. This is Jesus' last instructions to his apprentices. This is the very last one. You, you know what you guys saw me do? That's what you're going to do from here on out. You're going to serve. And it's going to look kind of slavish kind of stuff. I don't, I don't mean being stepped on. What I mean is not trying to lord myself over others. I'm going to actually volunteer to take some of those roles. And do you think this is true? Like, think about this. Do you think, do you think if, if Christians, if the church did this, meaning love God with all heart, soul, strength, and my love my neighbor as myself and sacrificially serve him, do you think that would change the world? I think it would. I think it totally would. Friday, after the Passover meal, Jews would often uh, give alms to the poor. They would stay up all night in prayer often. That's what Jesus does. He stays up in prayer. He goes to a garden to do it, but he's interrupted by this whole cohort of Roman and Jewish soldiers that meet him in the garden. Gethsemane, he's arrested. He's taken to the home or the headquarters of the high priest. High priest at this time is named Caiaphas. He's interrogated there with Caiaphas and his other friends. And it's decided that Jesus is guilty of a capital offense, meaning death. His guilt is not that he claims to be the Messiah. There, have been, there are a lot of Messiah claimers, and that's fine. The, the guilt is that he claims to have equality with God. He claims to be the unique son of God. He claims to be a, a co-equal with God. That's committing blasphemy, and they decide that he must die because of that. So they bring him to the Roman governor because they don't have the ability to enact execution. They're not allowed to by the Romans, so they have to go find a Roman governor. So they bring him to Pontius Pilate. Pilate has a long conversation with him, uh, but caves and orders him to be crucified, to be killed. Um, And crucifixion, we can probably skip kind of the grisly details of it, but it's so horrid of a thing, a whole word had to be invented to describe it. The word excruciating comes from meaning out of the cross. It's that being so awful. And it's basically a way of Roman public propaganda. You take a man and you torture him and beat him so badly that he's on the brink of death. And then you hang him on some sort of a stake outside of the city, up high in a hill, right near a road where everyone who walks by can see. And it's propaganda because it's, if you behave like this guy, this is what's waiting for you. And so the Gospels tell us that when he's on the cross, Jesus utters uh, seven sentences. Seven, seven, seven words is what, times, uh, what we oftentimes call them, and we've, we've studied them, we, we know them, um, and they're all important and memorable. One, one, though, stands out to me so much. It's his Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. See, Jesus said many, many times, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. That's easy to say. Right? Jesus is now practicing that on the cross, what he taught what about for us? See, Friday is grief day. Many people on Friday, on Good Friday, we're going to have, in fact have a Good Friday service we talked about. Earlier. Many people on, on, on Good Friday wear black clothes, just sort of as a, a private reminder. Um, I, was, I heard Melanie earlier at the beginning of the service. She said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast on Friday if anyone wants to join me. It's, it's, it's this way of, of privately mourning because it's a, it's a, now it's Good Friday because Christ's death opened up eternity to us. But, it, but it's, 
it's sorrowful because of the reality of of what happened. And so many, many Christians will and for centuries have, you know, sung the songs like, oh, sacred head now wounded. It's a grave song. And we need a way to lament. We need a way to remember. So that's what Good Friday is. Then Friday, right before sundown, right as Saturday starting, after his death, women who are very close to Jesus come to the cross and they take his body. Women in this day were responsible for burial. And they take his body down from the cross and, and, they, and they wrap it in cloths. And, and they, would, they would fill those wrappings with different spices because the body is going to decompose in a, in a public tomb. Um, and, and then they take him to a new tomb in Jerusalem. We're told it's from a wealthy man, Joseph of Arimathea, a new tomb that hadn't been used. They take his body there, but they don't have time to properly prepare it. So they wrap it, but they leave it on a bench inside the grave. And then they commit to coming back after Sabbath because they can't do this work during Sabbath. This is Friday. Sabbath is Saturday. So they commit to coming back on the first day of the week, Sunday, to finish the burial process. So Saturday. All Saturday, it's quiet at the tomb. The disciples are mourning. They're in shock. There's, there's an idea within Jewish communities, even, even today, called sitting Shiva. Shiva is the, is the word for seven. And oftentimes what happens in a, in a Jewish family when there's been a death is they say, I'm going to come and sit Shiva with you. It just means that I just come to your house and I just sit. It's just quiet. I don't do anything. And I, I abstain. It's, it's, it's an unordinary day. And I just lament and I sit Shiva. This day cannot be an ordinary one. And so many of you might do that. Maybe on Saturday you might say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit Shiva with Jesus. I'm not going to do the normal things that I, that I oftentimes do. I, I'm not going to work or I'm not going to have the TV on or I'm not going to have the radio on. I'm not going to read the normal magazines I read. I'm going to sit Shiva. I'm going to reflect. I'm going to be quiet. I'm going to be mournful. Sunday, resurrection. The women return early in the morning to finish the burial, realizing they're going to have to get the tomb open, but they show up and the stone's already moved, and they're shocked. The wrappings are there on the bench where they laid Jesus' body, but his body is gone. And then some beings there who we are told our angels tell the women that he's been raised. They don't understand. This isn't in their category of thinking. They're scared. They're confused. They don't believe it. <clears throat> they leave to go tell the other disciples. But Mary, Mary stays there. She stays around and she's waiting there. And then she meets Jesus. But she doesn't know who it is. She thinks it's the gardener. And then he utters her name in Hebrew. And immediately she knows it's him. And she runs to him and she throws her body onto his legs, holding, holding his feet. And he says, you can't cling to me. I've been resurrected. My, my relationship this, with this world has forever changed. Resurrection has taken. New creation has broken out in the winter of this sin-broken world. And Mary realizes that if death could not defeat him, it can't defeat any of us who are attached to him. Easter means death itself is defeated. And so the color of Easter for years has always been white. People all around the world, when they gather Easter, they wear white. Now, we in the West, we add pastels to it, right? Uh, that's okay, I think. Um, white is the opposite of black, 
like life is the opposite of death. Therefore, we gather on Easter, we celebrate and we contemplate how Jesus defeated the grave. And so we think about things on that day. And this is what I would encourage us to really have our minds think about. Think about men and women who have died in the faith. Who are with Christ in his glory. Awaiting resurrection. Think about people who maybe you're praying for right now that are, that are kind of standing at the portal of death. Who know Christ. And soon will be in the presence of Christ. Think about your own mortality. One day I will make that transition through death and await resurrection but i'll be with christ in his glory see on easter all around the world when christians gather you know the you know the greeting they don't say good morning they don't say how are you what's what's the standard greeting christ is risen right that's what christ is risen and the response is yeah he is risen indeed it's this it's done all over the world on that day i love that Beginning this Sunday, we're entering into sacred time. Beginning Palm Sunday, we're entering into holy time. We're entering into holy week. And it's been sacred to Christians for 2,000 years. And I don't want us to miss this opportunity to, to enrich our lives by moving through holy week. By, by, by like taking advantage of it, by slowing down, by pausing, by sitting Shiva, by, by reflecting. And then celebrating Easter because if we do this Easter will never be the same for me it won't be about pastels and eggs and that's it'll it'll have a whole new meaning in my life because see here's here's the big point preparation shapes celebration my preparation will shape the way that I celebrate and so here's the challenge you've got a bulletin in front of you inside that bulletin are some scriptures for each one of those days Take chair time, okay? sit Shiva, and, and, and just read those passages, reflect, and ask God to just prepare you for Easter, for that celebration. And I promise, you will be joining millions of Christians around the world who are doing that very thing. Shift this week from, from ordinary to sacred, and you'll learn things about God that you've never Learn before he will speak to your heart in a new way and then we'll gather then we'll gather on Sunday Easter Sunday wearing white and pastels I'm sure but not because of spring because Jesus has risen amen Amen. let's pray Heavenly Father we are stepping into sacred time this Sunday. And Lord, we recognize that every Sunday is kind of a little Easter. But Lord, we, we, want to, we want to have our hearts and our minds prepared as we do that, as we walk into the day that has changed all life in this cosmos. The resurrection of the Son of God, who defeated death, who swallowed death up. And Lord, as we gather for communion on Good Friday, again, would you do things to our hearts, prepare us so that we can step into huge celebration on Easter. 
God, thank you that your spirit resides within us. The same spirit we're told in Scripture that raised Christ from the dead. That's that resurrection spirit, that power, your Holy Spirit, which raised him from the dead, resides inside those of us who have attached ourselves to Christ. And thank you that we have that hope that because death could not beat him, but he beat death. If we're attached to him, death can't beat us and it will not swallow us up. That's the hope we live with. God, help us to walk through our days with an attitude that says, because of that, I am willing to risk anything for the kingdom of God. I'm willing for anything to be done or taken or moved or changed. I'm willing for anything, God, for the sake of Christ. Help me to have that attitude, God. Help, Help me to walk in that. Help me to understand the simplicity of what you want to love you serve and love my neighbors, God. Empower us for that end because we can't do it on our own. Thank you for this week coming up. We enter it prayerfully in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen. Sorry, we're ten minutes over. I apologize. Uh, You guys, thanks so much for being here. Our prayer team is going to be up front. Um, We'd love to pray with you for your needs. Look forward to seeing you this Sunday. Pastor Dick Foth will be here talking about Palm Sunday. So, see you then.